the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. This is All About Grants. Hello, and welcome to another virtual edition of NIH's All About Grants podcast. I'm your host, David Kossip, with the NIH's Office of Extramural Research. And today, we're going to be talking all about phase three clinical trials and what they mean here at NIH. Uh, For those who are interested in learning about the other phases of our clinical trials, um, by all means, check out other information we have on our website. But today, it's all about phase three. I'm glad to say that we have two guests with us. We have Don Corbett, Ms. Don Corbett. She is the NIH's inclusion policy officer within the Office of Extramural Research. And we also have Dr. Christine Hunter. She's the acting director of the NIH's Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research. So thank you both for being with us today. Thanks, David. Thank you. Great, great. So Don, I'm gonna start with you. What is a phase three trial anyways? Let's set the foundation. Sure, well, there's a few different definitions of a phase three trial, but NIH actually has its own definition um, of what we call an NIH-defined phase three clinical trial, and it's a bit unique. Um, You can find the full definition on our website, but essentially what NIH defines as a phase three trial is a broadly based prospective investigation that compares two or more interventions. Um, And a phase three trial often is aimed at generating evidence that may lead to a consideration in a change in health policy or standard of care. Um, So that's a really key component of the definition is that evidence from a phase three trial may lead to a change in the standard of care. Um, What makes NIH's definition different than some other definitions you may have seen is that it's quite broad. So it includes not only drug studies, but it also includes device studies, behavioral interventions, epidemiological studies, community trials, um, et cetera. So it's a lot broader than some of the other definitions of phase three. And what makes phase three trials unique? Um, Or in other words, like how are they similar? How are they different from other clinical trials? So I'll start by saying that phase three trials are similar to earlier stage trials in a few ways. Um, first, in that they involve some kind of intervention, um, and they are prospective. So they're looking at people going forward rather than doing a retrospective study. Also, many phase three trials are similar to other trials in that they're comparing one intervention against another intervention or a placebo. Now, this isn't a criteria for all earlier stage trials, but it's pretty common. Um, but it is a characteristic of phase three trials that they're comparing two or more interventions. So where they're really different, there's a couple of places. The first is they tend to be larger um, than earlier stage trials. And the reason for that is the purpose is really to determine if the intervention works in the general population at risk. Um, so they're looking, we're looking in a phase three trial outside of a highly controlled laboratory setting, and we need to have a sufficient sample size. Um, to represent that population at risk. And then also um, the sample size needs to be large enough so that it can detect a clinically significant effect. So they tend to be larger, um, although for some, in some cases they, they may be on the smaller side, but they often have several hundred or thousands of participants. Um, and then the real key difference between a phase three trial and earlier stage trials is that the trial has the potential to provide evidence 
for a change in the standard of care. So this is really the key of a phase three trial, which really sets it apart from earlier stage trials. Great. So you kind of touched on some of this, but maybe we can uh, get a little bit more. I mean, what should someone be thinking about if they're considering doing a phase three trial, especially like perhaps like in the application as they're developing their application, what should they be thinking about? Well, I'll start by saying it is important to get that determination right and to understand if you're doing a phase three trial or another phase of a trial because it affects how you fill out your application form. Um, so specifically in the PHS Human Subjects and Clinical Trials Information Form, there's some additional requirements um, for phase three trials that are not required for earlier phase trials. Um, one of those places is in section two of the form, there's an attachment um, for plans for inclusion of women and minorities. And in that attachment, um, NIH-defined phase three clinical trials will need to describe plans to conduct analyses um, by sex or gender, race, and ethnicity. Um, and we have, um, I'll put in a plug for a website that we have with a lot of information um, about those analyses, which we call the valid analyses on the grants.gov page, um, sorry, grants.nih.gov page. Um, but we also have additional requirements um, for data and safety monitoring for phase three trials. And so this is something when you're filling out the application in section three, there's an attachment um, where you'll include your data and safety monitoring plan. And then you'll be asked a question about whether or not you're using a data and safety monitoring board. So phase three trials are generally required to have a data and safety monitoring board. So they would typically answer yes to that question. And then they would describe their monitoring procedures in that data and safety monitoring plan. And since you, you plugged the website, I can also plug a great podcast that you were part of on valid and stratified analyses for, this, <laughs> for those who want to learn a bit more too. Um, so you also mentioned standards of care uh, a couple of times earlier on. Like, can you tell us more about what's the role of, of phase three trials in influencing standards of care? Yeah, so phase three trials are unique because if successful, evidence from the trial may lead to a change in the standard of care or even a change in health policy. Um, so an example of this is for FDA regulated drug trials. The phase three trial is usually the last step that's required before FDA approval of the drug. So you've tested for safety and colorability and you found preliminary efficacy. And then you'll do a phase three trial to see if it works in the general population. And at that point, um, if successful, um, you, you would try to get FDA approval. Um, but it's um, important to keep in mind that the trial being proposed um, should be providing the evidence that may change the standard of healthcare policy. So if you're doing a trial where the potential to change that care may rely on additional research being conducted in the future, or it's kind of far removed, you may not be doing a phase three trial and you may wanna to talk to your program officer about the appropriate phase. So I, I agree with Jen completely, of course, um, but you know, there's also the caveat that there's really no guarantee that a standard of care or policy will change from any study, but in thinking about whether your study's phase three, you wanna think about whether the data accumulated before the trial supports that it's really moving, it, that it's moving in the direction that it could, that the data from this phase three trial could change healthcare policy or standard of care. And that the quality, rigor, things like generalizability um, 
should be of a nature that it would support decision makers um, in, in making those changes and making new standards of care. And I'll just say in the behavioral and social sciences, there, there isn't a regulatory body like the uh, Federal Drug Administration. So, you know, unlike for drugs and devices in our field, we need to think about would this provide sufficient evidence to inform other types of decision makers, whether that's, you know, groups like the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force or the CDC's Community Guide or kind of disease organizations like the American Diabetes Association or American Heart Association, would the information provided lead to a change in the way that they approach um, publishing and distributing standards of care? Thanks for, for that. And since Christine, since you mentioned behavioral and social sciences research, as you know, NIH has, you know, we support research across the gamut. You know, are there any sort of um, considerations that, you know, as it relates to specific research areas, maybe even using behavioral and social sciences research as like a, as a guide? So, you know, honestly, there really aren't any substantive differences, substantive differences in thinking about uh, behavioral science versus other types of science and whether what phase it is, um, other than the lack of regulatory pathway that I already mentioned. But I think there is less familiarity on the part of researchers and research agencies like at NIH about how, how different behavioral trials fit, how to classify them. And so I think that can trip people up. And, uh, you know, Don mentioned this, but it really warrants that advanced discussion um, and consideration. So there's agreement about what the phase of the trial is and how that'll be classified long before you submit um, your grant. I see. I see. Well, since you mentioned submitting that application after we've thought about these phase three, you know, what what's happening next? It's going to go through peer review. What are what are the peer reviewers going to be thinking about or looking at or reviewing as it relates to these trials? So peer review is going to look um, at phase three applications, much like they would look um, at all grant applications in doing their assessment. Um, but there are a couple of additional considerations for NIH defined phase three clinical trials. Um, first, peer review will be looking at plans for analyses by sex or gender, race, ethnicity, um, and that will be part of their consideration of whether or not inclusion um, is appropriate in the study. Um, based on that, um, their evaluation, they may consider the application to be acceptable or unacceptable, um, and those with unacceptable plans um, must be resolved um, before they can be funded by NIH. Um, they'll also be looking at the data and safety monitoring. They look at this for all clinical trials, but for phase three clinical trials, they generally will need a data and safety monitoring board. And so that's also part of the review. Um, reviewers will look at that and see if monitoring um, is adequate. Um, and this will all be reflected in the score. And what about for those that get a good score, get go all the way, get funded? You know, now we're at the point of actually doing the trial and, and reporting back to NIH on our on the progress. Um, you know, how should people be addressing that? Yeah, so um, if your NIH fund, um, phase three trial is funded, um, you will have some additional things to report in your progress report. So all um, NIH grants have to submit progress reports every year. If you're doing an NIH-defined phase three clinical trial, you'll also need to report progress on any analyses by sex or gender, race, and ethnicity in your progress report. Um, so often early on in your trial, you may not have much to say in terms of those analyses. Um, they may still be in progress, and um, that's fine, but you should include a statement letting us know that they're in progress in every progress report um, and give us updates. And then, um, 
once um, those analyses are complete, um, you'll include those analyses in the project outcomes section um, in your progress report, the RPPR. So the project outcomes section, if you're not familiar with it, it's a brief summary written in lay language that is actually made available to the public and it includes results from your study. Um, so something to keep in mind is that um, included in those results should be any results of analyses um, by sex or gender, race and ethnicity. And then we have one final reporting requirement um, for applicable clinical trials. So applicable clinical trials are FDA regulated um, drug and device studies. Uh, they have an additional requirement um, if they're also NIH defined phase three clinical trials to report the results of their analyses by sex or gender, race and ethnicity in clinicaltrials.gov. Definitely lots of things to be thinking about and keeping in mind all the way from application all the way through award. Um, well, you know, this has been this has been a great opportunity to learn here or learn more about these um, you know ins and outs of the phase three trial. Are there any final thoughts? I always like to leave the leave some time for our guests to say anything that they haven't been able to say that's incredibly important about you know this particular issue. Well, incredibly important is a high bar, but I would like to say <laughs> that that uh, based on, you know, kind of the things you've heard from Don about all the extra reporting and sort of the significance of what a phase three trial means um, in terms of kind of data and safety monitoring and, and other kind of important factors is we just really uh, strongly encourage researchers to engage um, their program officer at NIH early on about these issues and discuss kind of what, where did where do they see their trial uh, falling, why, and coming to agreement. Um, it's important for you know the application. It's important for peer review, and it's important for monitoring. And you really want to have those things nailed down before um, before you submit your application. And so to start, you know, to help with that, on the Office of Behavioral and Social Science Research website under Research Resources, we have um, created a decision support tool, and it really kind of outlines features to consider in determining if your trial is a, uh, a phase two or a phase three clinical trial. And it's really the tool just to help guide those discussions. It reviews kind of what it means, what the distinguishing features mean, so the change in standard of care and health policy, and then outlines features to consider. And so that includes how to think about selection of a comparison condition, um, purpose in relation to establishing efficacy and effectiveness, and then thinking through number of participants and sites and kind of the duration of the trial and how those decisions might or might not um, affect the determination of what phase the trial is. So that conversation with your program officer in advance is just super important to kind of smooth sailing <laughs> through the granting process. Well, uh, thank you very much. We definitely cleared that high bar <laughs> at the beginning of that. Uh, and smooth sailing. Um, well, I appreciate that, Christine and Don. This has been a great opportunity to learn more about phase three trials, how NIH is thinking about them and considering them. Um, I definitely encourage everyone to check out the information that's available on the NIH's grant site, as well as what Christine just mentioned on the Office of Behavioral and Social Sciences Research's website, their decision tool. Check it out. Uh, this has been David Kossop with the Office of Extramural Research all about grants. Thank you.